Hi, this is Dusk Lantern, and I'm here with Dr. and Reverend Adam Koontz. We're going to be discussing two classics within two different traditions, generally referred to as the East and the West. And today we'll be talking about, you know, doing a little bit of a compare and contrast between the Book of Songs and the Homeric epics. And I think it would make sense to just kind of do a little bit of framing here regarding what the meaning of these sorts of texts are for, you know, in terms of larger cultural significance, in terms of how, what we can understand from these cultures as a result of examining these very significant texts, uh, as well as understand how history can even unfold from this paradigm that these texts set. So with that, I'd like to introduce my long-term friend and ask him to uh, illuminate on that topic a little bit. Yeah, the, yes, sir. The role of texts like this is very different from the way that we now think about books or maybe works of literature more narrowly, because what you're dealing with in a classic such as you have it called in the East or in the West called an epic, classic is a really a later term for the West, is something that has overarching cultural relevance, value, obviousness, and permanence. So that is not the same thing as just the enormously wide array of reading material that you have practically anywhere in the world at this point because of modern technologies of book production. But it's also different from what might be called in certain educational contexts, great books, where you've got, I don't know, 30 books or 40 books or 100 books, and you're supposed to have read all of them, but then their coherence or their relationship to each other is determined really by you and the way that you have put them together and, and reused them. You know, so James Joyce is not using uh, Homer in the same way that William Faulkner or Ernest Hemingway might be reusing Homer. Whereas when you have something that is epic or a classic in whatever culture, this is something that a person is simply generally presumed to be familiar with. And that idea did survive for a long time in the West with Homer, particularly such that you get you know, chance meetings in the aftermath of a battle as late as the Second World War, where, you know, a German officer and a British officer are are quoting Homer to each other in Greek when introduced to each other, you know, under, you know, someone is surrendering to someone else. They both know Homer in Greek. So this is where these books are in their respective contexts of a a value surpassing really any others. They're foundational in a way that certain kinds of literature, not only philosophy or religious books or something, but books of literature seem to be. And so that, you know, that role is something more like the role of the Bible in cultures that use the Bible or the role of the Quran in Muslim cultures than it is uh, Homer or the Book of Songs. Let's, let's set this next to the Old Man and the Sea, or Red Badge of Courage. It's not the same thing. It's not just a good book to read. These are 
utterly foundational stories or, or ways of speaking, ways of thinking. And for that reason, I think that's why they're worth comparing to each other. Yeah, the the foundational dimension of these books is why we're talking about them today. There's both of these sets of texts are interesting because we have some very important philosophers' perspective to these traditions that have uh, quite a bit to say about the, the value uh, of these texts. So I'm going to jump here a little bit to perhaps a topic that I think I wanted to save for later, but it makes sense maybe to talk about a little bit now, uh, which is what does Confucius say about the Book of Songs? And also, what does Plato say about the Homeric epics? So I'll start here yeah. talk about the Book of Songs a bit. Just as an introduction, we'll go a little bit more into... There are many songs here. There are hundreds um, in this collection. And another related question would be, who put this all together? Because we have some songs that seem to come from the very beginning of the Zhou Dynasty and then some that clearly come towards the end as things are falling apart. So who is who is editing these, who is compiling these? Uh, one traditional answer has been Confucius himself. And Confucius really values these songs, although there has been quite a bit of interpretation as to in what way does he value these songs. Are they stories of moral exemplars? Are these stories that bring us back into touch with nature, not only, say, the various plants and flowers and beasts and birds of the field, but our own human nature. I just got finished putting setting up a Zoom account and the number of hoops and oddities that you have to go through is very representative of modern life, where your whole life is essentially detached as much as it can be from nature, sometimes intentionally and sometimes it's simply a byproduct of how we've set up our life and our economic realities and so forth. But the, and this is, this is actually, you could say, one of the problems of civilization in general. Not to be crude, but I think one of, I think the earliest time, honestly, that human beings have thought maybe civilization, maybe sedentary lifestyle was a mistake, was the sharing of the bathroom, where probably you, uh, had to deal with someone else's um, problem, uh, whether through order or sight, and then you thought to yourself, "Well, is this really how it you know how it has to be?" Because if you're in a nomadic lifestyle, you just don't encounter that uh, kind of situation. You just you just do your business, you get up, you leave, you move on. Um, it's not something that you really have to deal with. So there's something I think about civilization that as it becomes more and more complex, especially, starts to detach you away from the nature external to yourself, but also the nature internal to yourself. So one of the possible values that Confucius sees about the Book of Songs is that when you're reading these books, uh, sorry, these, uh, these songs, these odes, these situations are essentially perennial. They always come up. Perhaps we're talking about a jilted lover, perhaps we're talking about feelings of abandonment, perhaps we're talking about bad government in general that's oppressive. 
perhaps we're talking about people who have status that do not deserve that high status. These are problems that always are encountered. And so mm-hmm. as I read the book of Psalms, I just, even, even though these people who wrote them, composed them, never experienced what I have to experience as a 21st century person, I can still really connect with these people maybe thousands of years into the past. Uh, so there's a number of things that Confucius finds valuable here. And he, he also, from time to time, does quote out of context sometimes in order to make sort of a, uh, a analogy or metaphor yeah. for self-cultivation, which I think is wonderful. Yeah, the the nearness to nature or the or the imitation of nature giving you greater acquaintance with nature is also understood in the West to be the point or the, or one of the purposes, along with delighting and teaching, of art generally and of literature specifically. So at the heart of that entire discussion within, let's say, ancient literary criticism is the idea that imitation, mimesis in Greek, is at the heart of what writing does, especially poetry in form. The the novel sort of exists among the Greeks. That's largely after the classical period and more in the Hellenistic period. So that's not really a discussion for right now since Homer predates that that classic literary discussion. But the idea of mimesis is so powerful that in the 20th century, the literary theorist Eric Auerbach is going to say that mimesis is at the heart of Western literature. So that that book, his book, Mimesis, is a survey of Western literary tradition, including the Bible, but down to modernist, even you could say, novelists. That's completely in agreement with this idea of perennial situations, perennial lessons, perennial depictions that you were describing, but it's it's also at the heart of Plato's, let's say, despising of Homer. <laughs> because uh, maybe most famously in The Republic, Plato has in the mouth of Socrates an extensive critique of poetry generally. But there are other dialogues such as Ion and Gorgias where the critiques of poetry and even of Homer specifically, I believe in Ion, are even more pointed and it's it's that the distaste for poetry there is not a contention that art doesn't actually imitate nature it it does in fact it's it's art's power to do so about which plato is so concerned because he's fundamentally concerned that in it is in the nature of fiction whether in poetry or prose or whatever to distort he's especially concerned about the distortion of the depictions of the gods in Homer, behind which is a basic discomfort that many ancient pagan Westerners have with Homer, where Homer's function within, let's say, Greek or or Hellenized culture. So the Greeks have a role in the West somewhat similar to the Chinese in the East as a source not of everything in the surrounding cultures, but of sort of many of the mainsprings of thought concepts, religious ideas. And so the, the, the concern is that the Greek depiction of the gods, particularly the Homeric depiction, because it is dishonorable, encourages impiety among the populace. So there's an, there's an insight here with which I think Confucius would agree that 
whatever popular entertainment is, and if it is in archaic or classical Greece, the recitation of Homeric epics by people that, by all accounts, have memorized both the Iliad and the Odyssey, then we need accuracy, clarity, exact imitation in everything, especially in theological depictions. And if that's lacking, then it's actually worse than someone walking around simply stating those things in a philosophical manner or a, a dogmatic manner would be another word the Greeks would use for the positive assertions about reality. It's worse because that person is not going to win that many people. You know, Plato understands that philosophical dialogue is, is, is not for most and never was. And their educational system in such was not intended to be popular. But things that are popular should reflect the truths upon which philosophers are, you know, staking their, their lives. If they don't, then we have a very big social and political and philosophical and religious problem. So what Plato is critiquing in Homer, but in all poetry as well, is the distortion of reality for the purposes that are unique to art, right? So like, why does that distortion enters in? It enters in because art also has to entertain and delight. And in doing so, it presents, for instance, Athena as vindictive. That It's a discomfort that ancient pagans in the West are going to have before the advent of Christianity. And they're going to have it for philosophical reasons. But their philosophical reasons, thinking this is dishonorable or Maybe there's only one God and these popular depictions are just manifestations of a one reality, sort of almost like they're like avatars of, of parts of the divine or, or however they theorize that. They have a discomfort with what is popularly depicted and then also popularly recorded in the Homeric epics. So that, that, that critique of Plato honestly doesn't really go much of anywhere. I mean, even his, his greatest student, Aristotle does not share it. But um, it, it does have a certain weight down through the years as as pretty much anything that Plato said does in the West. There's a larger connection between um, <clears throat> this idea that literature and fictional depictions of reality can, um, in a sense, seduce people towards wrongdoing. And mm-hmm. It, you know, more than simply wrong understanding, you can make attractive things that are not good. And we have a, um, perhaps a recognition of this, um, s- somewhat perhaps indirectly. Uh, when Confucius is saying, uh, making this complaint that the music of, um, <clears throat> of Zhang and, and Wei, Song and Wei, um, and by the way, uh, for the listener's benefit, um, I don't really know how to speak Chinese, um, and so my uh, pronunciation uh, of his words are bound to be somewhat incorrect here. Um, but there's this famous complaint that the tunes of Zhang and Wei are corrupting, you know, the classical odes. And it's pretty interesting because with the odes, you can, um, of course, look at um, what exactly those odes are. 
Um, so if you have a copy of the odes and you want to follow along here, if you look at, say, uh, ode number um, 95, um, if you look at those lyrics, uh, they're kind of interesting because um, I think this is where really the tone comes into play. So we can, what Confucius was talking about was merely musical tone, you know, the, the rhythm, right. the, uh, the melody. Um, so, you know, this kind of relates uh, very clearly to today because if you look at some of the hip-hop music, the rap music, the popular music, the pop music, um, what they do is they use tone. Uh, it's not always lyrical. In fact, you could remove the lyrics and still the music would be literally licentatious. Uh, um, because the melody and the beat are of such. Um, and so even without the lyrics having all of these curse words and, uh, you know, uh, essentious material, uh, the, the music itself overall would be of that nature. But what's interesting here is that, uh, with 95, either this, uh, ode is either about, you know, um, just checking out the last cake and a man giving um, a woman, a flower, or it could be sort of a sexual metaphor. Um, and so by attaching some melody and beat that is suggestive, like the, the kinds that we find in music today, you can change essentially people's intuitive interpretation of this music into something that is sexual. Right. Yeah. And I think that that has to do also with the question of genre and the predominance of certain genres um, with their length limitation, their melodic limitation, their rhythms that are particular to them. Those do control the forms of thought. Now, that in that way, I would say that Plato's denunciation of poetry is not particularly attentive to the realities that you're pointing out here with O95. Because he's he's not saying that, well, you know, let's limit the scope or let's limit what may be discussed in public or let's limit what may be depicted in to what degree of of you know graphic depiction. He's he's making an overarching you know assault on the concept of poetry, which is related etymologically in Greek to the notion of making. So he doesn't he doesn't like the way that they are making things. Um, he wants philosophers to dominate all making and and even in their own way to supplant the making of the poets with the making of the philosophers. I think that when you're talking about lyrics, you're always talking about things that are going to be more popular than something structured as an epic, right? So if you take um, you take some of the uh, Chinese classic novels or uh, the tale of Genji in Japan uh, or things of similar length, such as the Homeric epics, you're dealing with something that even if it is popular in its vocabulary or readily comprehensible, that's precisely Plato's concern about it. It requires some degree of, um, let's say, not professional, perhaps, but cultivated or trained performance, um, not only to be written down in the case of, um, you know, novel, for lack of a better word, um, with um, 
uh, the Chinese the Chinese classic novels or Murasaki Shikibu's work. But uh, certainly in the performance of epics in the West, um, musically, you you are requiring an expert to do these things. Um, and the other epic is a form that's going to get repeated throughout most European literatures down to, you know, until you get to the point where mock epics are maybe more common than epics in earnest, let's say the 17th century AD. Until that time, especially when they are poetic, the composition and performance of them is going to be remanded really necessarily to, to experts. Those experts, therefore, maintain control, necessarily so, over the way that things are said, the emphases given, even within, you know, let's say the, the poetic form. Uh, there are so many options, as you pointed out, and how it could be accented, how it could be sung, how it could be performed. Um, lyric poetry, I think, necessarily has a broader room for interpretation. Um, by by virtue of its brevity, by virtue of its allusiveness, by virtue of its use of symbolism. So, you know, yeah, what is the peony at the end of each of the stanzas here in Ode 95? Uh, like you said, I think that does, and like the, the scholar who prepared this edition that we're using, I think that does necessarily depend on performance. So um, when you're dealing with uh, poetry of any kind, uh, you're always dealing with something that is either going to affect the elites uh, in its composition or in its performance, or somewhat more, let's say dangerously, it's going to affect everyone, uh, at least in its performance. So, you know, what what is the popular music? What is allowed to be heard? What is out there? Uh, all of that matters a very great deal. I don't, I don't think Plato was wrong about that. I think he would share all of the sentiments that you just said about rap. Um, I just think, I just think he was wrong that you therefore have to banish all poetry because it's just better to be, you know, uh, safe rather than sorry. Yeah, it's, that's actually, um, leads me to another point more generally about the Tao. Um, by Tao, I mean like a way of life. Um, and that's really kind of its original usage is a way of life that is guided by wisdom. Um, and so we do have kind of philosophy or, or a, uh, what's the philosophy of your life or a Western life philosophy or Western, I guess, uh, more generally these days people will say, uh, you know, world for you. Um, so those, those, those are some possible, uh, translations of what the word Tao means. Um, I just don't want the lesson to be confused with uh, Taoism, which is yeah. pretty different. Right. <laughs> from, right. You know, the Tao of the root, you know, root meaning. That's the original term for a Confucian because that way of life pre-existed Confucius for centuries. Um, because his way is, um, a interpretation of the Zhou ways and that goes all the way back to, uh, you know, King Wen or the Duke of Zhou. Uh, we're thinking about it, especially in a cultural kind of way. And um, what the Ru in general um, envision is a society that does, it, it is rich culturally, very rich culturally. And so that's why we have such an emphasis on what's called Li, 
And I think the best way to translate that uh, at the beginning is through the term ritual propriety. Although it is not limited to ritual, uh, not formal ones. So, um, you know, uh, communion, of course, is a, is a ritual. But if we're thinking about Li, uh, we're not thinking about something uh, that is necessarily religious, spiritual, um, right. those, you know, typical uh, understanding of that. But we're talking about uh, even simply uh, what we're doing here, where we're waiting for the other person to finish talking, even though we have all sorts of ideas we want to bring. Um, we're talking about things like etiquette, manners, consideration. Um, and so a person's whole life should be lived poetically, uh, lived beautifully. And that's what's encompassed in this understanding of Li. So the vision for society is one that is full of ceremony and music and uh, these good stories that help us become more virtuous persons. So rather than discarding all of that kind of um, reality for the human being, what's understood, what is implied is that the government actually has a substantial role in um, various aspects regarding uh, a beautiful culture. So for example, um, some sort of patronage or even direct production of music, of, of stories. So, you know, I don't, I, I really don't believe you could have Shakespeare without patronage. I don't think that's something that right. yeah. mass producing culture could have ever really come up with. Um, or of course, you could also, uh, one of the roles of the music master at Korinke Shunze, who is a underrated, uh, new philosopher in my uh, perspective, because people uh, historically have liked Mencius, uh, above Shunze. But I'm a little different. Um, Shunza tells us that you know, the role of the music master is to separate what is true music versus what is essentially uh, should not be considered, you know, true or good or however you interpret that statement. So there is a kind of a separation uh, between um, good and we can say uh, suppose a uh, sort of colloquially evil. The involvement of political authorities with what we consider in modern societies to be private activities or commercialized activities, you know, the pr production of music particularly, um, but, but also literature and dance and the visual arts, that, that connection between political well-being, political authority and uh, artistic production, I think, is really a commonplace of any traditional society. So although you will not find the same interest in ritual specifically in its various connections to all the different facets of life in the West that you do in the East, you have ritual at being really pretty much presumptive. So for example, especially in the Iliad, where you're dealing more often with political realities, um, kings, things like that, they don't explain, for instance, why there is a series of athletic contests 
at a death. They just port, they just show that, right? That's the occasion for another turn in the narrative. Or they don't, they don't tell you how or why, um, Menelaus is able to command the loyalties of a wide variety of Greeks in his efforts uh, in Ilium. They just show that to you. So I, I think that the, the distinction here is not so much, um, it's not like the genre distinction between epic and lyric that, that does perhaps affect, and we can talk about that more, that does affect what is discussed or how it's discussed. Um, therefore, what the prime interests are that are being inculcated in the listener, but it's it's almost like the the distinction here is that the Homeric epic does not spur a primary interest in, and this is ironic considering we've talked about Plato. The primary interest there philosophically is not a political philosophy, even when those political realities are practically identical to the points that, for instance, Confucius might make or Junzu might make about um, the connection between art and the art and ruling, right? Um, the the interest of the listener to a Homeric epic is not directed primarily toward the political realities or their reasons for being that um, that that are actually being narrated, if you know, however briefly. And this is this is why there there is a there is a distinction here I think between ancient epic and you know not only the sort of millennial speak use of epic as an adjective you know this is this is so epic uh, but but also between ancient epic and things that modern people um, unfortunately almost wherever they live in the world are going to be familiar with. Um, such as Star Wars, or uh, more recently, not as widespread, obviously, but pretty widespread at the time, Game of Thrones, where the prime, where the primary interest of those narratives is generally about the the acquisition, the absence, or the use of power, and that is not really the burden of Homeric epic or the ancient forms patterned on it. The primary interest there is the destiny of man uh, under his own power, but but ultimately under the control of the gods. It's not really about whether or how, you know, what, you know, how much soft power does Achilles command that when he sulks in his tent, you know, um, or how much hard power does he have that the threat that he will turn on them uh, or just simply go home. What will that mean for this war? That that isn't really the primary interest. Power is not the primary interest. Man's destiny, or what's going to be called, especially in northern epics like Beowulf, his fate. That that's the primary interest because at the heart of the mythologies that undergird these epics is the idea that there are things that command even the gods. I mean, even the gods are mortal. Right. Um, so that's that's famously known in the north with the concept of Ragnarok, which makes its way even into Hollywood versions of the Vikings, the the destruction of the gods, the final apocalyptic battle when even the gods perish. But such a construct exists also in Greek mythology and, and therefore, of course, in Roman mythology, 
that the gods will die. So the idea that your primary, let's say, philosophical, let alone literary, interest would be in finding um, perennial patterns. I think the reason that slips into a secondary concern, even in Plato, I mean, Plato's laws, which are maybe one of the documents in Western, the Western canon, let's say, closest to something like the Analects, even in Plato's laws, there's there's always the sense of ultimate mortality for all beings. And that makes discussion of these things fragile and then more usually, I think, secondary because political realities will perish eventually. There's no there's no sense of unending um, rule, uh, even of the gods, right? So obviously this is going to change with the advent of Christianity, but certainly in the pagan West, there is no sense of unending rule or pattern that would make adherence to that rule or pattern, even where it does exist, of any kind of primary interest. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's very interesting because um, there's if we go back to the idea of the Tao, uh, this is a pattern that is likened to being a universal one, not in the sense that yeah. it can exist outside of human commitment, but if as a human being you do commit to this, and I, I don't even mean as an individual, that's not really yeah. how it is. Um, at the minimum requires a family, uh, perhaps at minimum a nuclear family, but it does involve more than one person mm-hmm. to be able to fulfill. Um, if there is an idea, it seems that um, you can, um, as long as human beings do exist, have the possibility of putting this into uh, practice, mm-hmm. um, and therefore you can receive all the uh, joyful fruits of that Tao. Um, what you're talking about is something that is inevitable, but there are scales to this. So um, if you're thinking about uh, the scale of the gods, um, you know they their life is far exceeds that of mortals. Uh, if you're thinking about um, the lifespan of a human civilization, that surely has a limit, but there are many generations within that uh, civilization. So um, this is where you know I'm acquainted with the Republic um, and uh, the general happenings of the uh, Iliad and uh, you know the Odyssey. But uh, this part that you are talking about. Uh, where, you know, the gods themselves are subject uh, to to death, and therefore all that can be done has an impermanence. Um, I, I guess my my question here for you would be: um, Does this mean that a person cannot live a life uh, that has a or a way of life that has a sort of constancy among generations? That would lead the individual to experience, um, I suppose, what the Greeks, to my understanding, would call eudaimonia. Yeah, um, there there are perennial things. Um, I would say that those thoughts about what is going to be called most often in the Western tradition natural law, those thoughts are in contradiction to the poets, and that I think is one of the secret springs of the jealousy that 
is expressed through the mouth of Socrates in the Republic about the poets is is not only that the poets will always be more popular because human beings will be swayed by music and images and ideas presented in that way much more than a philosopher is ever going to achieve. Um, it's it's also the understanding that uh, what is expressed by poets is even if it has relatively little relationship to logos or reason, ratio in Latin, then uh, that doesn't matter because uh, it is <laughs> because precisely because it is more popular, uh, but but also because it's it's going to present an idea of life that will be more um, in mythological terms Dionysiac. That is, it will be it will be of the night. It will be chaotic. Dionysus is the god of wine. He inspires furies in his worshippers, and it will not be Apollonian. It will not be of the daytime, of the light, of the sun, of reason. And um, that's that's something that is fearful when it breaks out among men. That doesn't mean that there's nothing Apollonian going on, uh, even in poetry, which would partly be Aristotle's defense of poetry that it does give men access to to reason, um, which is not just a sheer, you know, sort of calculating faculty for ancient people. It is the light or the capacity to grasp truth that every human being has in various measures. So um, that attachment to reason is not altogether unknown. It simply exists next to and in contradiction of the idea of impermanence. I would say that the the advent of Christianity, intellectually speaking, is a resolution of that struggle between, let's say, Dionysus and Apollo, very much in favor of Apollo, very much in favor of reason. And the the reason for that is that Christianity, of course, does not have an impermanent God, so it doesn't have an impermanent reason or a provisional reason. When you have access to reason or truth um, in Christianity, you have access to eternal realities uh, assured by, created by, ordered by the one eternal being. So that's that's going to radically change things. It's also going to change the epic because anything that even calls upon the epic, let alone presents itself as such. So your most famous example for the listener's benefit is going to be uh, something that calls upon the Roman epic of Virgil's Aeneid, which is Dante's Divine Comedy, uh, a comedy being, classically speaking, just a story that ends well, rather than a story that, because of hubris, pride ends badly or tragically, right? Um, in the Divine Comedy... Of course, man's fate is in God's hands. So that has some analogy with the you know, idea about destiny that you might find in the Iliad. But that God does not is not overtaken by, let's say, the passions that were so embarrassing to Plato about Homer's depiction of the gods. So that God is not going to just randomly completely change such such that the structure of hell or in the inferno or the nature of blessedness in the paradiso 
would just change completely radically for no apparent reason. It's that that randomness or that strangeness, that weirdness about reality that I think can only really be captured with that extreme sense of ultimate impermanence that you get in in the pagan West, certainly. This is uh, this discussion of what Christianity does, you know, in shifting the paradigmatic cosmic view, well, I guess all of life. It makes me reflect on what is what is kind of the standard cosmological assumptions of those living in you know East Asia for the last few thousand years, because there are a sort of pantheon of gods, but if we're looking at it from a Ruist perspective, a Ru perspective, they don't really play much of a role. You know, there are these uh, rituals that are done for a particular. Uh, relating to particular spirits. And one of the difficulties of looking through history when you're looking at a, a culture that is different from the West, but you're looking, you're using um, everything, every Western instrument of understanding, such as language, or we're looking at the academics, you know, who are studying these things. What we'll find is a lot of terms that are translations or attempts at translation that really do not accurately depict uh, what is actually going on. So, for example, the emperor, that term emperor is already bringing up conjuring certain images that are not quite accurate because the uh, most famous emperor in the West, I would say, is the Roman emperor. And even with that situation that changes throughout the centuries, you know, what, what an emperor is supposed to be and what his role exactly is in leadership. Um, so already we have some kind of images that come to mind that are not quite accurate. But this also happens with words like gods, the spirits, and what a slave is, what a concubine is. So those those have very different meanings. But but I bring this up because I want to talk a little bit, bring up a little bit about this understanding of this kind of triad between the human being, heaven and earth. Because it, it seems that what is translated as heaven, Chan, Chan is, and that's most typically spelled T-I-A-N, romanticized. Chan is typically translated as heaven, but depending on how you interpret this, this could either mean more like nature, that's eternal, uh, there's a sort of a, you know, unchanging nature, or we can talk about something that is more deity-like, in which we come somewhat close to the idea of God as described in, in Christianity. I'm bringing this up because I think that could possibly inform anybody who is interested in kind of understanding a bit more about root philosophy and, and what's going on. Why is there this kind of Tao that is able to be implemented? Why are, do so many of the root scholars throughout history believe, in contrast to Shunzi, that human beings must be naturally good, born with goodness? Because there's a special relationship between the human being to Chan, and Chan is perhaps not speaking to anybody directly, although it kind yeah. of seems like in the odes there is one depiction of the founding king of the Zhou dynasty. Basically, there's a communication of some sort where that king is saying, okay, I'm going to undo the In dynasty, the Shang dynasty. And through that, he's going to essentially bring justice to him. And that gives him his mandate from heaven. Right. I just thought that was kind of interesting aspect I think there's a lot that we can we can talk about, and 
I did want to talk a little bit about what's the benefit of a narrative versus poetry, just simply in general. It doesn't have to be a book of songs compared to specifically surviving Homeric epics. Maybe we could talk a little bit about that and then we'll wrap up with the possibility of maybe discussing this more another time. You think it still deserves some exploration. At the end, I, I want to talk a little bit about what's the benefit of studying the Tao in general. Yeah, the benefit or let's say the usefulness or the the uniqueness of narrative is that narrative gets into something that human beings appear to do since stories appear to be universals or or near universals in human culture, that narratives get into something that human beings are able to do and do do naturally, which is to construct significance through telling or retelling something that they've either come up with fiction or that occurred to them or lots of people or whatever it may be that is history. So fiction and history are different in their anchoring points. Fiction has to have solely internal coherence. History has to have internal and external coherence of truthfulness. But they're very, very similar in many, many ways. And certainly in the ancient Greeks, you're not going to see the same, the same amount of distinction between history and fiction that we might if we just open up a fiction book. It has no notes whatsoever and is written perhaps even somewhat obscurely uh, versus a history book that's loaded down with notes and references and this can be very ponderous to get through. Those distinctions don't exist to nearly the same degree in antiquity. And even when they do exist, like when Plato is telling us that in the Timaeus that Atlantis occurred, existed, sank beneath the sea and so forth, (laughs) we're inclined to treat those things as fiction. So, But the point of narrative is that it is far more powerful for practically any human being to sense himself inside of or to examine, it's almost easier to examine, than pure lyric. So... Lyric poetry, of course, exists in ancient Greece, but it is used for occasions. You're going to have different modes and different foci for different occasions, whether it's a funeral or someone is taking over power, a king is coming into his power, or one city-state has won victory over another city-state, or a philosopher has died, or whatever the case may be. So, Lyric is used for occasions. So some of the most famous odes from ancient Greece are going to be Pindar's odes, most of them devoted to victorious athletes in the Olympic and and other games, all of which are highly ritualized and generally have their source in someone's death. They all start out as funereal games, such as you see pretty early on in the Iliad. So those occasions and the genre resemble Confucian ritual as well as practically timeless occasions, perennial human occasions. The range is not as wide as you find in the Book of Songs in Greek odes, with some exceptions from what we might think of as romantic poetry. There are the sapphic odes, things like that. Epic, because it involves narrative, is simply working much more popularly and with I think this is ironic because the story is always more particular than a lyric about a man and a woman can be. But despite its concreteness, this war, this ship, this crew, 
this wife waiting at home, this son seeking to come into his inheritance, whatever the case may be. Despite its specificity, it achieves universal relevance simply through being a well-told story. So there is a power peculiar to narrative that lyric or other, let's say, occasional forms, they're going to access perennial things by different means, and they're just not going to captivate in quite the same way. So where you have a narrative, you often have, for that culture, your most powerful art form, most powerful literary form. So you can find things that resemble epics in most societies for that reason, or at least a, at least a cycle of stories commonly told together, bound together, read together, recited together, that are going to powerfully move people. And that could be a, presented actually as history. Um, yes. Yep. Precisely. Right. As the Bible would for a post-Christian West, and especially a post-Christian and pre-Enlightenment West, I suppose, if you want to be more accurate. And you have these stories about these very significant historical figures that are constantly invoked in a lot of discussions that Rue's scholar officials have in the process of deciding government. So, yes, those stories are very important. Well, there's a lot, I think, that we could possibly discuss, but we're, we're kind of rounding in the hour. Do you think there's some worth furthering this discussion, or do you want to perhaps close on this kind of comparison? Yeah. yeah, I think there's plenty more here, precisely because we've been comparing to some degree apples and oranges because of the different literary genres. I mean, they're, they're both poetry, but the genre does matter because genre controls thought form, capacities for expression, length, all sorts of things. So it's going to engage different parts of both individual people, but also cultures. It would be nice to compare a narrative with narrative. Lyric with lyric is honestly a little less interesting because I think it is right to say that lyric relies on what is perennial, almost generic about human experience. This is what it's like to be disappointed in love, you know, and these sorts of things can be expressed lyrically. But when you're dealing with narratives, you get both much greater specificity, but I think you also get particularly from what is not explained, but what simply sort of moves things along, a sense of what is particularly important to a culture. So the device whereby, especially at the end of a Greek play, you would get quite literally like the gods would descend from the top of the construction up on the stage, deus a god ex machina, out of the equipment that we use to raise and lower things to and from the stage. That idea, I think, often feels more artificial to modern people of East or West because we are almost presumptively less religious than were ancient Greeks. So, and not of any particular religion, but just less religious. So to them, a lot of the interventions of the gods, whether in the Iliad or near the end of a play or something, don't seem nearly so artificial as they do to us. So some of those devices that you get in a narrative to compare a Chinese four-volume novel to the Iliad or the Odyssey would be enlightening in that way, because then when you have the genres more closely matched, it's a little easier to see what's going on. I think it's also, for in that way, easier to perceive what the Tao is 
right? So one of the more popular, for the listener's sake, you may even have read this or, or seen it at a bookstore at least, one of the more popular Western explications of a notion of Tao is C.S. Lewis's little book, The Abolition of Man. He even uses the term Tao in there to express what he's trying to say about what might be called in the West the natural law or moral law binding universals for human conduct. His engagement with that is via philosophical texts stacked next to each other, because one thing that we've we've seen in today's discussion is that philosophers and poets not only express themselves differently, but are led almost by virtue of the way that they work into ideas that differ pretty widely. And I think particularly artists, poets, novelists, working in narrative are will always end up expressing things differently than a philosopher might because they don't maintain the same distance from the human subject that a philosopher can or a lyrical poet can. Certainly. There's there's a lot to talk about here. So suppose to plan for a discussion into the future furthering some of these points. Yeah, that sounds if good. Yeah, if, um, if you as a listener were having some trouble keeping up with Dr. Coons, don't feel embarrassed because this is, he has a degree in comparative literature and we're bringing in some sociology. And so you really see Dr. Coons at his, I think at his strongest. So don't, don't be afraid to listen to this again. A little more further into understanding what he was talking about. And while you're here at Kennedy Radiance, you know, we'll be talking about the Tao again uh, and furthermore. If you're a listener that's here because of Dr. Kuntz, I'd like to welcome you. I'd also like to encourage you to look around at the Kindle Radiance, look at some of these other areas. I think that you'll find a surprising connection between, as Adam had briefly mentioned just now, that there is a connection to looking at the world through the lens of a Tao and the way of, of God, you know, there's a lot of references. There's this particular phrase throughout the Bible, both Old and New Testament, following or walking the ways of God. And I, I don't think that's a coincidence that that's a metaphor that's being used. You know, that's something that we could talk again next time. Since we're having to wrap up, I would like to provide our sincere thanks to Dr. and Reverend Adam Kuntz for coming by and enlightening us with much of his Really great knowledge here, both in particulars and also his very deep insight. Yeah, thank you. It's been my pleasure. And please come back often. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, let's do it. All right, yeah.